What happens when former enemies of a prolonged war decide that there will be no investigation of war crimes? What happens when they agree not to hold trials to identify the perpetrators or victims of human rights abuses? This was the case with the peace agreement that ended the civil war in El Salvador. Through a general amnesty, all sides agreed to bury the crimes of the past. There would be no recourse for the families and loved ones of the countless thousands who died in massacres, were subjected to torture, or simply disappeared without a trace. But is it ever really possible to turn the page without any form of reckoning with the past? The unprecedented outpouring of personal accounts and testimonials from the former combatants that followed the war suggests that Salvadorians still need to tell their story. What do these stories tell us about the war and those who fought it? What insights do we gain that may have been hidden during the fighting? Do these memories of the past offer hope for a lasting peace? To delve into these questions and more, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Eric Ching from the Department of History at Furman University to discuss his book, Stories of Civil War in El Salvador, A Battle Over Memory. Eric, thank you for taking time to join this episode of Realms of Memory. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. You stress in your book that your book is not a history of, a, of the Civil War. It's a, it's a history of how it's been remembered by, by the former participants. But at the same time, you realize that it's important to provide a bit of a context. Before jumping into the, to the precursor to the Civil War itself, like you said, the war was 1980 to 1992. The, you know, the way it's traditionally described is this was situated in a Cold War context. We have on the one side so-called Marxist or leftist, a leftist guerrilla army, the Farabunda Marti, Front for National Liberation, um, fighting against, you know, a standing government, uh, which at the time was um, not, not exactly a military regime at that moment, but had been traditionally up to that point uh, a military regime or a series of military regimes. Um, but they were fighting against a standing government um, that was, um, you know, conservative or leaning to the right and and very heavily supported by the United States. And so it usually gets pitched in this in this Cold War environment of you know, left, right, and, and you know, the idea that the, <clears throat> the FMLN guerrillas were supported by Nicaragua and Cuba and the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc and, and this sort of stuff. And that's not entirely inaccurate, but I want to start with, with that sort of description and say that when we take a look at the, the guerrilla army or the opposition that was fighting this fight, th- there, there were certainly were some committed Marxists and committed communists, the, the guerrilla army was comprised of five different factions that had come together in, in the 1970s. And, and two of those were avowedly communist or Marxist, but the other three were, were more social democratic. And that's just the sort of formal guerrilla organizations themselves. The overwhelming majority of fighters uh, were poor people from the countryside, and many of them came to the fight through the church and through um, their understanding of liberation theology and their needs and demands for a different and better life on the ground and issues of um, communism and Marxism and these broader ideologies really didn't uh, apply a great deal to them. 
So, and then, but on the other side, uh, you know, you know, the, the government, the United States was, was fully supportive of the government and the military in their attempt to hold off this guerrilla insurrection. We have to remember that in 1979, July of 1979, the Sandinistas overthrew the Somoza regime in Nicaragua, uh, which became, you know, the so-called second successful leftist revolution in, in the Americas after Cuba. Um, and, Reagan, the Reagan administration had both, or Reagan had both run as a candidate and then in his administration had made stopping the spread of communism in Central America, to say nothing of the world, but in particular in Central America, an absolute centerpiece of his foreign policy and as it tied into his domestic policy. So to that end, El Salvador, kind of that border between El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua right in there, you know, that became sort of like the the the, the line in the sand that he had was going to draw. And then throughout the 1980s, as many of us know, um, you know, they, the U.S. dumped in billions of dollars, which in today's money is not a lot. But if you translate it out, you know, is a huge amount of money at the time. Uh, and only Egypt and Israel were receiving more direct U.S. aid than was El Salvador throughout the 1980s. So it really became um, uh, that, you know, this tiny little country um, <clears throat> that had very limited resources and you know, in some ways was, you know, not overwhelmingly relevant, you might say, to some broader geopolitical issues suddenly became, you know, you could say ground zero for much of those. Um, and if I just stop and hold on that, I'll say two more quick things about the Civil War itself. Well, one more quick thing, and I'll just maybe set up very briefly the precursor to it. Regardless of anyone's um, views on the Civil War and who they, you know, you might say favored or didn't favor. Um, it, what the what the guerrillas managed to do, you know, when they were being completely overwhelmed in terms of money and munitions and personnel, um, it, you know, to be able to hold on against that army and all of that U.S. support, you know, for 12 years and to be able to bring that war to a negotiated settlement and force the hand of the government and the army to come to the negotiating table <clears throat> is really quite a remarkable accomplishment. And again, without, without oversimplifying this, but El Salvador had, you know, the longest run of uninterrupted military rule in modern Latin American history. The military came to power in December of 31 in a coup. And for the most part, they never left until, well, really till the war was over, but, you know, officially in, you know, 1979. And so for, you know, approximately 50 years, the military controlled the government and they basically made life particularly easy for the tra traditional slash notorious Salvadoran, you know, uh, landowning elite to go about their business without much interruption. Now, one of the things that I'll show in the book is how much distrust there were between these two actors throughout Salvadoran history and coming up into the civil war. But that, that's a broadly accurate statement and that the military worked very hard to suppress and hold down any opposition to that arrangement, basically. And we saw that most notoriously in a massive uprising or, or a massive massacre of uh, peasants in the West in 32. And when demands for peaceful demands for democracy came in 44, 60 72, 77, the military was there at each step to push this back down. 
And so it's out of that continual opposition, you know, and violent opposition to peaceful transformative change that ultimately, the, as you put it, the conditions for war in 1980 um, became real. And by that time, the military and its paramilitary allies, which we sometimes call death squads, you know, they were killing a thousand people a month coming into the 19, you know, the, the early 1980s. And I would just say it was just getting untenable for too many people. So you have this conflict that unfolds. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, I mean, how would you describe you know, post-Civil War El Salvador? Well, the, when I say that they negotiated an end to the war, uh, on the one hand, you know, the, the two, you might say, parties that were in conflict with one another, the FMLN and what the, at the time was the ARENA government, you know, they did negotiate a, a form of genuine and legitimate democracy. And for the next five elections, you know, they had re- relatively free and fair um, elections. They had, you know, peaceful transitions of power. Um, you know, that they, the parties changed hands, uh, you know, be- between them. And so you might say that, you know, to the extent that some people were fighting for democratic reform, they, they accomplished that. What's happening most recently in El Salvador now is tragic in that regard with the Bukele administration and the sort of consolidation of all branches of government. And it seems readily apparent that the, the country is taking a, a turn towards centralized control and and a form of authoritarianism. So that, that's a tragic, uh, uh, you know, sort of outcome. On the other hand, uh, I think it's safe to say that the negotiated settlement to the war did not produce any fundamental structural economic change. And while the coffee economy collapsed, partly because of the war, partly because of international changes in coffee, it's difficult to look at El Salvador from 1992 forward and find it to be a very economically viable place. You know what? What? What does it produce? What are its exports? What? What? What keeps it going uh, outside of remittances from, um, you know, my, migrants to the United States? Um, and um, so, pe- people that I know that we, you know, spend time talking about this with, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, a sad subject, really, because all, all this struggle and loss and for what. And oftentimes in the memoirs or really the testimonials that will we'll distinguish between the two, that's a common refrain, you know, by, especially by poorer people out in the countryside, like was, was all that really worth it? Because how, how much is really different for me now? And then of course, just to mention at the very, you know, tail end here, this, that, you know, El Salvador has a, a terrible gang um, situation, which is an extension of, you know, the poverty and the <clears throat> legacies of violence and the presence of weaponry and the, the difficulties of the, of the central government to, you know, maintain viability and uh, presence. And so all of these sub, sub-state actors are, are, are more free to move. And so it's, it's been, I, I hate to be depressive about it, but it's, it's not, it's, it, you know, it didn't go how many people hoped. I guess I'd just put it that way. Could you give us a sense of like how many people did this actually affect in, in terms of lives lost, people wounded, people displaced? I mean, 
Yeah, that right. So you're right. It's about the size of Massachusetts. It had about five million people uh, at the time of the outbreak of the war. So in about 1980, so give or take about five million. And then over the span of the war, again, these numbers vary, but people seem to have settled. You know, on 75,000 people killed. Um, you know, many of them civilians in the countryside. Um, it, it's hard to calculate. I mean, it, it probably was upwards of 300,000 people are wounded. And then it seems pretty secure that at least a million people were displaced from their homes. Then that was both internal displacement within El Salvador. Some of them crossed the border into the uh, UN camps in Honduras. Uh, and of course, many fled to other countries, Mexico, and in particular, the United States, as we know. So you have this population that's traumatized by the scale and scope of, of, of what was lived through. And then you have a democratic system. And what effort is made to address this past, to try to work through it, to deal with it? No, that's a good, that's a good way to lead into it there, Rick. Um, yeah, so the government that uh, was in power, the, the ARENA government, and they would win the, the first election in 94 after the war, which to, to many people on the left where it would seem like a great surprise. Um, but if, if you knew anything about El Salvador at the time, it would, wouldn't, shouldn't have been such a surprise, but anyway, but yeah, this arena government, as soon as, as soon as the settlement was made, they pushed through an amnesty law that basically made it impossible for anybody to be held accountable for their actions during the war. And, it would make perfect sense that ARENA, the National Republican Alliance, they were called, um, that government would want to do that because, and these figures that I'm about to give you are difficult to be exact, but they, they give you a ballpark that it, it's, it's evident that the vast and overwhelming majority of the human rights abuses and the deaths that were committed and or perpetrated during the Civil War and before were done so by the military and the right-wing paramilitary death squads. And so that government had no interest in trying to allow that to be adjudicated, especially in court. On the other hand, you know, some people say that the guerrilla leadership was at least willing to go along with that because if they really did start to get down to brass tacks and details, of course it was a war and they're going to find things that the guerrillas did you know they they admit to admitting to have assassinated some mayors in controlled territory and and you know maybe a few other things and so it was kind of a bargain that they were willing to make even though the responsibility of the opposition to these human rights abuses was you know negligible by comparison but yeah so the amnesty law went through and and that was it and until that amnesty law was was undone here in 20 uh, 16, I believe, 2015 or 2016, actually, just as my book was first coming out, you know, none, none of this could be handled in El Salvador. N- none of this could be adjudicated. And it was only when some of the main perpetrators ended up in the United States and did things like lied on their immigration um, forms that allowed lawyers and, and plaintiffs under certain um uh, legal codes uh, to go after them in the United States. And so that's how some of those uh, court cases came up. You know, there were a couple, two or three, uh, and in particular that one in 2015. 
uh, in, in Massachusetts that resulted in, in the conviction. Now, shortly after that, you know, the, they, they did undo the amnesty law in El Salvador and the, the case of one of the most notorious um, massacres of peasants by one of these rapid action battalions in, um, in El Salvador in December of 81 called the El Mosote massacre, that was begun to be adjudicated uh, after the amnesty law was was lifted. And that was going on here now for the last four or five years. But then the current administration, the Bukele government, wanted to shut this down, presumably because he needs the military. And um, he forced the retirement of the judge uh, in that case. And so that has gotten shut down. And so the um, it, it seems like the potential adjudication of these affairs within El Salvador is not going to go forward. So that's an unfortunate um turn of events. But you get to the point, which is legally, officially in court environments, you might say, this civil war was not going to be adjudicated. And that's why that, and that brings us full and center to the nature of my book, which was, but it was going to be tried in the court of public opinion, meaning people were going to talk about it and they were going to share their stories. And so this public space through memoir and testimonial became arguably the single most robust environment in which people dis- discussed and remembered the war. So on the one hand, there's this unwillingness to really look into this for the reasons that you mentioned. But at the same time, it's this exceptional space where you have all these possibilities to talk about the past. Yeah, well, and and like you said, in a democratic space. So, I mean, you know, before before the Civil War and during the Civil War, it it, it would could be scary. It could be dangerous to speak publicly about you know some of these issues to talk politics, for example. Uh, but after the war, that that environment changed, and so the the public arena. Uh, the public sphere, I guess, if you want to use that of official term for it, you know, became a place where this could be um, dialogued about. Just on a personal note, I was curious, how did you run across these narratives? How, what was your what was your introduction to this? Yes, that's the, I think that's a good lead into it, because uh, I had been working on other projects on El Salvador prior to this with with very different sources. So you might say more traditional archival sources. At a project just preceding this, a, a co-author and I had worked a lot with with interviews, but that was from really the the nineteen sixties and around a massive educational reform in nineteen sixty eight that, in some ways, was a precursor to the war. But we need not go into that. But been working with those kinds of sources, and in, in the process of doing that work, I suddenly, you know, began to stumble across these this kind of outpouring of memoir and autobiography. And also testimonial, and we can distinguish between those two in just a second. But that basically, uh, I, I discovered that Salvadorans were putting their life stories into the public arena in the form of published books, in the form of interviews online, uh, in various newspapers. But, you know, in particular, in what you might call formal or traditional memoirs and autobiographies. And it just became this kind of flood that you know of as each year 
went on after 1992, the, the amount of words <laughs> that people were sharing publicly, specifically about the Civil War and their life up to it and during it, was just growing exponentially. And all of a sudden, I realized that this was kind of the place where much of the memories of the war were being established. There were others, public parks, museums, these types of things, of course, but it, it this really seemed to me to be like the main area. And what I think is interesting about that is that prior to the Civil War, there, there it's difficult to find memoirs or autobiographies. It just wasn't part of the Salvadoran, I don't want to call it even literary community because that's not exactly what this was, but people just did not write about or share their personal stories. Um, it, it just, it didn't exist basically. And so to, to be working in El Salvador uh, as an academic at the time, and then to see this growing mass of public expression of personal life and personal story was just suddenly it began to trigger in me that there's something here that needs to be done. So when it's, it's in reading through these accounts that you eventually identify four different groups. I call them memory communities is what the, the term that I use. And, and I use that term because the point being that I, 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 I tried to not assume that there was going to be any uh, uh, groupings, you might say, or that they would necessarily fall into particular categories. And I, I found that that through the process of reading all these, that this, that these four different narratives began to emerge as constant and consistent and saying almost, you know, very much the same thing from one life story to the next. And that they, they were kind of falling into, you might say, into their own groups. And so that's where I came up, you know, with this notion of these, these are memory communities. These are people who are, for some reason or another, sharing the same narrative about what happened and about who they were within it. And who are these groups? Who are the four groups? Yeah, I, I, I name them as the civilian elites, military officers, guerrilla commanders or comandantes. And then the fourth group I call rank and file um, uh, testimonialists is, is what I mean there. And so in a way they are actual, you know, social groups, socio-political, socio-economic groups that exist in El Salvador, like the civilian elites, you know, they're, they're people who are civilians and, and have wealth and power. And the military officers are former military officers and the guerrilla commanders are former guerrilla commanders. But again, the point being is that I, I didn't necessarily assume that that these folks were going to be part of common memory communities. It, it, they, they sort of emerged in the process of reading these. And so they, they are socioeconomic, sociopolitical people in El Salvador, but the, 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 I, I define them or I lump them together, you might say, because of the narratives that they tell and therefore identify them as so-called memory communities. So if you could start by commenting on, well, if you look at these four groups, how do they look at, how do they explain why the civil war happened? I mean, how far apart are they or how, in what ways do they overlap in trying to account for, for, for why this took place? 
I, I think I think what I'll I'll say is that if 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 you went into in the reading of and an attempted analysis of of all these um, life stories, so to speak, you might assume that they would tend to fall down on that sort of Cold War uh, description that I had described at the beginning of our conversation, which is you would think that the okay, if you realize that all right, well, there's a there's a lot of memoirs that are being put forth by civilian elites, for example. And then there's a lot by army officers. You would might say to yourself, oh, I bet those are going to form, you know, th- those are going to be in agreement with one another. They're going to share similar views and they're going to have a, a, a common interpretation of the war. And then if you were to say, and on the other hand, you've got a, a lot of memoirs being put out by former guerrilla commanders. And then you also have a, a pretty strong handful of testimonials, um, which maybe now is the moment to kind of distinguish between those two, but testimonials from poor working people, many in the countryside, most of whom fought with the guerrillas or supported the guerrillas, you might say, well, the guerrilla commandante's memoirs or life stories are going to fairly match up with the, um, the, the testimonialists, the rank and file. That would be a logical conclusion, but then to, to your question, Rick, to your point, they actually revealed many um, divergences and disagreements, you might say, over how they were narrating the war, how they were remembering it, how they described its meaning and subsequently its implications. And so that's the real part that I think comes out of this, um, which is these, uh, um, I guess you might kind of cognitive dissonance with the way we typically think about that war and and how these memory communities reveal that to us. And again, to, to hit on that main point that you asked, I'm not using these memoirs to tell, you might say, a factual story of the Civil War. Instead, I'm trying to provide a factual rendering, you might say, of how it's being remembered. But to the extent that these narratives and these memory communities reflect anything that happened in the war, you can begin to see that the war was a more complicated experience internally than we typically think. And, and I can dive into that here when I make this comparison. But I can, maybe I'll just very quickly draw this distinction between testimonial and memoir. <clears throat> and th- this is common for, th- this distinction is common for people who are familiar with testimonial literature. But when we talk about an autobiography or a memoir, it's usually from someone who uh, is literate, has the capacity to write their own story, probably get it into publication themselves. Um, you know, a, a traditional autobiography, if you want to put it that way, they they typically author it, or at the very least, they give an extensive interview to someone, and then together, the the two of them are are turning this into um, production. Testimonials are sort of, by definition, on the other hand, typically provided by someone who is probably illiterate somebody who delivers their story orally, delivers it to somebody else, often often an outsider, but sometimes communities gather together and do their own collective testimonial. Um, and it usually requires the aid and assistance of someone sort of from the outside, someone with access to the publishing realm, to then get these stories into uh, a publicly available form. So it's it's basically the difference between you know, people who are relatively affluent, often urban, um, and literate, and 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 poor people who are not, but who still have um, stories to tell. But I mean, is it fair to say? I mean, if you're looking at these different accounts, 
that everybody's arguing that their hand was forced, that, that it's, it's a decision was one of self-defense. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if I actually articulated it to myself that way, or if I put it in the book, or if you're just gleaning that. Um, but yeah, that each group considers itself justified in its position and subsequently, presumably in their actions, that their hand was forced by someone else. So the elites in the military would argue that they were attacked by the left. That would be both a domestic left and an international left. And that therefore they were defending an innocent population from, you know, a left wing, you know, authoritarian insurgency. And on the other hand, both the guerrilla commanders and, and the rank and file fighters, uh, you know, again, most of whom that we have sources for were supporters of the uh, guerrillas would argue that they had been under assault for decades and that it had only gotten worse in the late seventies. And therefore when they took up arms, you know, you could call it an offensive move, but it was ultimately in their mind, a defensive struggle for life or death. But yeah, maybe if I were just to mention a, a couple of these really, uh, what I think to be these sort of interesting things that stand out of these, of these narratives, if we just take the civilian elites as an example there, so, you know, they, they were basically heavily supported by the army and heavily supported by the United States in, in the war effort. But when you look at the way they narrate themselves and their story, they're extremely distrustful of military officers. And they consider them to be too willing to engage in things like the idea of land reform. They're too willing to consider... Um, you know, hindrances on the market, uh, the free market in order to maintain sort of a collective stability in the country. Um, and th they essentially talk very negatively and remember in very negative terms, both the military officers and the, their supposed ally in the United States. And they found, you know, the United States too willing, especially like during the Alliance for Progress, to come in and meddle in El Salvador's economic affairs. And they essentially, their their narrative, of course, it rejects the left and rejects that popular change. But their narrative <laughs> focuses down on, on an opposition to... to to the military and to the United States. And when you read their memoirs, you, you would, uh, it's amazing the extent to which they don't even talk about the military fighting the war. Yeah. That was hard to grasp. When you mentioned that you mentioned they, they discussed their own paramilitary participation, but not the military. Correct. They discussed, they, they discussed in kind of veiled terms, but it, you know, it clear to anybody who knows what's going on, that it was essentially their, their paramilitaries, I mean, what we would otherwise call death squads that they financially supported. It was their paramilitaries combined with the political action or the formation of political parties like Arena um, that that that's what won the war, or that's what fought the war essentially. And twelve years of combat between the guerrillas and the army doesn't even show up in in these elites' memoirs, and that was that really stood out to me. 
So, I mean, do you see any kind of crossfire between these different accounts? Because you would think that if you're in the military camp and you got a hold of one of those <laughs> civilian elite accounts, you'd be outraged. Well, exactly. And then, so the next thing you go into the military, um, uh, memoirs and it's exactly what you're saying it's it's not as if they're reading these civilian elite memoirs and reacting to it they're just telling their own story like i said before there doesn't seem to be like an intentional back and forth they don't seem to be even reading one another's things for the most part but when these military officers settle in and say okay well what's what's my interpretation of, of the war and you know of course it's all about either battles with the guerrillas and how we saved the country and uh, and in particular, they they frequently would disparage the United States for 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 essentially similarly meddling in their affairs, trying to control them from a human rights perspective, trying to control what they could and couldn't do based upon the funding that they were going to provide for them. Um, and so, you know, the United States comes out looking you know, the supposed ally during the war comes out in both of these narrative groups as, as, you know, an, an interfering meddler. Sure. We'll welcome your money. Sure. We welcome you as a, as a international opponent to communism and as a stalwart against the Soviet union. But when you, your presence is here in El Salvador, frankly, it's not very welcome, you know, amongst us. And so that, that's something that you know, stood out for me. But then, yeah, the military, the military, um, the, the military memoirs are very explicit about how they believe that the, the, obviously to them, to the left and opposition and, you know, people demanding reformist change are, are a problem for them, but, but they really describe the civilian elites and their intransigence, their unwillingness to reform, their just constant and steadfast refusal to, to, listen to these calls for change the the military sees that as as a foundational problem in the country and so again like you say these these two narratives as to like well why did this war happen how might it have been avoided you know these these stand in in contrast to one another and yet we've always traditionally saw these two groups as you know two sides of the same coin and then when you talk about the rank and file, they're the one group that kind of is separate from the other three. Well, yeah. And I think that, right, if if we kind of do just a quick comparison between the guerrilla commanders and the, the rank and file, like you say, the, the I mean, by far and away, the guerrilla commanders have put out the most volume of, of stuff. It seems like they're very anxious to get out there and and establish their story, you know, establish themselves as, as leaders. Um, uh, maybe may for some of them with the, the hope of, you know, political careers or whatever after, after the war. But yeah, I mean, these, these two, again, they they were on the same side. Um, but, but they, they, they narrate the war very differently and they tend to portray one another in not so positive lights, I guess is the way to say it. But I think Rick, something that you mentioned before, I'll, I'll come back to, which I think was one of the more interesting aspects of this that the 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 fundamental and overarching i think cornerstone of the guerrilla commanders narratives is that and it came up again and again and again and again it's just recurrent is that each of them describe the process of awakening that they went through 
that they had to figure out, um, or, or to put it differently, many of them come from relatively middle class, lower middle class, uh, urban environments. And most of them describe their childhood and growing up in very positive terms, positive family life, um, you know, going to church, being part of these uh, religious groups at school, uh, having an education. And so when they narrate their, their childhoods, they're, they're, they're quite positive. And this actually ties back to what you said before. That's very much like what the elites do too. The elites have what you called or what I called in the book, a, a golden era in El Salvador when life was good. Things were calm and steady. People could make money like my parents or I could make money. And, and this was a, you know, this is a golden moment. And then somebody came along and ruined it. And yes, of course, it was the left and the guerrillas, but it was also those reformist military officers and that meddling United States. So they have this golden age and the guerrilla commanders just time and again would say that, you know, I, I really, I had a wonderful childhood. I had a wonderful youth growing up or whatever. And then at some point I became aware of the deep structural problems in El Salvador. And I had to go through this process of a consciousness raising. And that process of consciousness raising led me to become politicized. And as I became politicized, I eventually became militant as, as it became clear that there was going to be no peaceful process for change. That's the, the basic premise of these guerrilla memoirs kind of over and over again. And you mentioned that awakening, that awareness it was often connected to something personal that happened, some kind of personal shock that happened to them or some, someone close to them that, that kind of burst the bubble that they were living in. Yeah, often personal. A friend would be arrested or um, there would be some act of violence that would be perpetrated on somebody like that. Um, and, and it was also a process of uh, a, a, an educational process. I mean, many of them describe um, coming through the church and as the church began to, uh, you know, began that, that the liberationist um, perspective of the church began to grow, they had an educational, you know, enlightenment, you might say. For many of them, the 1972 election is often seen as the single greatest cataclysmic demonstration that peaceful change is going to be impossible. And that's when the military basically stole the election from um, a, a civilian um, uh, move, political movement. But if I can make that the, the connection that you, you had said before between the guerrilla commanders and then their rank and file, what, what stands out so clear for the rank and file is that all, almost to the last of their testimonial stories, that the word consciousness raising or anything like that, that that's like the guerrillas, does not exist. Instead, they describe that the war essentially came to them or the war was forced upon them. And so they their participation in the war, you might say, in their description, comes out of this, essentially this act of self-defense and survival. Like they, they clearly had a politicized understanding of it or would come to acquire it as they would describe it. But it, it stands in stark contrast to the way that the guerrilla 
commanders would be, I had to first learn about the injustices in El Salvador. And then as I politicized, I became militant. And the, the testimonialist time and again would say, would, would, there wouldn't be some process of politicization. There would be, you know, violence came to us or, you know, whatever this system of oppression came to us and we were fighting for survival for our homes and, and so forth. And so I, the way I think I phrased it is at one point, one of the testimonialists made a really kind of compelling uh, <laughs> um, description, which is he described those who are fighting in the war by choice versus those who are fighting by necessity. And it was kind of a slap against some of the commanders who they considered to be urban, affluent, talked different than they did, came from a different place than they did. And while they were clearly committed to the war and to the war effort, uh, at some point, one of them sort of made this distinction between them and us. And to go back to the thing that you said about the military and the elites, this is the kind of thing that was non-existent during the war, that this, this internal divide between the guerrilla organizations and the guerrilla leadership and the rank and file who were fighting and supporting underneath them. And what comes out in the memoirs is that there was either a lot more tension there at the time that we didn't know about, but at the very least it's being remembered that way afterwards. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're asking that, I know I'm jumping around here, the question, well, this isn't an objective history. These are just different communities that remember this past in their own way. But there are political, potentially significant political implications of uh, of remembering this past in one way or another. Right? You point out that for the rank and file, they're not lock and step with the, the former guerrilla leaders. In fact, they could gravitate to a totally different group that they were opposed to during the war. So if you're looking at where the country might go politically in the future – that there could be some, uh, you know, some some insights that we, we could gain here. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I mean, and I think one of the most classic examples is the the leader of the ERP or one of the leaders of the ERP, Joaquin Villalobos, um, you know, who spent most of the war up in Morazan, uh, the northeastern part of El Salvador, you know, fighting, leading, fighting alongside, you know, peasant campesinos from the region, and after the war. I mean, they, they, they completely rejected him as a political candidate um, for, for many reasons, which we don't need to go into, but they just, they did not see him as sharing their, their needs, perspectives and worldview. And they, they, they just rejected him as a viable political alternative for them. So I think that speaks for exactly to what you're saying there is that, when you read these memoirs, you see, and testimonials, you see this narrative discord. And it could go a long ways towards explaining that. So one of the points you make as well is that their omissions in, in most of these accounts, right? Uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, censoring or editing out of, of things that, uh, that um you know, intentionally aren't going to cast one group or the other in, in the light they'd like to be cast. So is that something you could comment on? Like what gets left out 
by you know by each group or or is there one group that that tends to be more open and honest in talking about what what happened well <clears throat> i i think that if we just kind of run through them quickly i mean the civilian elites are are rather honest is by far too much of a strong they at least are willing to say we had to take matters into our own hands because we couldn't trust the military in the U.S. And so that that's those veiled references to death squads and to paramilitary action is in there. But we, we know in hindsight how terrible and widespread that that was and that that's not, you know, they don't engage in that at all. And, and just the terrible violence and torture and abuse that, that they perpetrated. And the, and as for the military, of course, they're leaving out. <laughs> they they perpetrated, you know, scorched earth policies through some of these guerrilla tr- controlled territories, especially at the beginning of the war, and perpetrated you know multiple massacres of of civilians. El Mazote being just one one of the most well known. You know, that was a thousand people were killed in in a weekend. They they don't they don't address that, uh, of course. Um, or if they do, you know, it would be described as, well, we had a military firefight and there was some minor collateral damage during, while we were, you know, defending the country from the guerrillas or something like that. Um, as for the guerrilla commanders, they have a lot less to account for, but certainly one of the things that, that has now been documented and that they leave out is some of the internal purges that they went through. And one of the organizations, the FPL, had a particular problem with this in the latter half of the 1980s. Um, you know, where they, they, it, many hundreds, you know, and maybe even a thousand, you know, um, people that were their supporters essentially were were either killed, arrested, or um, well, e- either or, uh, out of fear of um, that they were sympathizing with the enemy. Um, and then, so I guess to answer your question, I. <laughs> I find that the testimonialists, the rank and file, you know, to be, well, to have the least to hide and to, in that way, kind of to be the most honest. That's the impression that, that I got, that I took away, that they were the ones, they didn't need to fabricate an elaborate narrative to explain how they ended up in the conflict, right? They lived, they lived the system and, and their hand was forced. Uh, and um, they seemed to be the most willing to talk about not just what they were subjected to, but what what they perpetrated. Yeah, I, I think that's the way it comes across. Yep, and and in that, in that regard, I mean, does that make you hopeful? I mean, to me, you could look at that and say, well, that, that's the bulk of the population, and if they're willing to look at the past in an open and honest way, maybe there's some there's some promise that the country can actually deal with some of these things that maybe the elites are reluctant to talk about. I think that's a great observation. Yeah. I, I really do. I was going to say there's one one sort of caveat that I might put on this these testimonial sources that I have, because we, we want to be cautious to, and this gets into some historiographical debate in revolutionary movements in Central America and Latin America, as portraying these, these rural fighters, these rank and file, as sort of passive agents who are being acted upon rather than having autonomy and taking action. And, and it's very clear from some, from various levels of research that there had been a long standing 
you might say, mobilization amongst the peasantry out there over issues of justice, economic justice, political justice, and social justice. And in that process, I think many of them might have described how going through a certain kind of awakening, especially as a consequence of their encounter with the liberationist church. So I think what's what's interesting is that the, the testimonials that are available to me, that I, I scoured and, and looked for every one of them, they tend to come from a particular subset of the population, and that is, you know, rural, poor peasants um, who are writing their memoir from the perspective of not necessarily years of mobilization in the 1970s, but rather they got into the war in the 1980s um, without necessarily their choice to do so. So I say that because it might be a kind of peculiar subset of, of that, that subaltern voice, you might say, and that elsewhere and in different places or at some time, maybe that other voice is going to come through. So if you look at how each of these groups assesses the conflict, how far apart are they? I, I think that's, that's a, uh, like I say, a good way to describe it, because I, I think that when you ask, and I, I conclude each of these separate chapters or groups kind of with that question, which is probably what's inspiring it. But when you basically say, all right, well, let's take a look at the guerrilla commandantes. How, how do they assess the war? And their answer is pretty positive. You know, we, we fought a good fight. We had to fight. Um, and and we, we got something out of it that is better for the country. And, oh, by the way, we're, we're also going to be the new leaders of the FMLN political party. And so, of course, we're going to say that the war effort was worth it, that we got gains out of it, and that we should continue to build upon that legacy as we move forward as a political party. So their, their assessment is like pretty positive. The testimonialists, the rank and file, not so much. They're, they're, they're pretty explicit about was any of this really worth it? Because I, I really don't see my life having fundamentally changed. Like I, I, I got into the war again, maybe not, not much by choice, but however it is that I got into this war, I, I was fighting for either survival, but ultimately for, for in the end for structural change. And that hasn't happened. So in that way, you, you could take that next step and say, you know, our leaders have let us down because they're talking about how much progress we made, but I, I'm not feeling that here directly. Then the military elite or the civilian elites, they're of, of a little bit more mixed, mixed mind about it. They, you know, they, they sort of see the, the positives and negatives. They, they certainly acknowledge that they have been given, you know, the opportunity for some degree of free reign once again, but they're, they're, pretty pessimistic about the, the current structure of the country. And as they compare it back to what they call that golden age back in the 1950s and early 60s before the meddling army officers and the meddling United States came around, you know, they, they don't see the post-war 
environment quite in those rosy terms. Um, then they tend to speak about, you know, the violence and about the chaos and the instability that, that doesn't give them that notion of the freedom of movement and space and control that they once enjoyed. Years after the end of the Civil War in El Salvador, the fight continues to rage through the memoirs and testimonials of the former combatants. The outpouring of these personal accounts demonstrates the need and desire of Salvadorians to confront the past. Cloistered in their own respective memory communities, there is little opportunity for the kind of dialogue that might build trust between these important segments of Salvadorian society. As Eric Ching makes abundantly clear, these accounts are replete with sentiments of distrust and suspicion. There is still little desire to shed light on the crimes of the past, and much pessimism remains about the outcome of the war. With El Salvador's recent turn towards authoritarian rule, the prospects for a peaceful resolution to the nation's unfinished memory wars look increasingly bleak. I would like to thank Eric Ching for sharing his time and thoughts with me. I would also like to thank the Google El Salvador Studies Working Group for the very helpful suggestions on additional resources on the Civil War in El Salvador. I've included links to these resources on the podcast website page devoted to this episode. Next month, we'll turn to the memory of the Franco regime and the Civil War in Spain. We'll hear from University of California, Irvine professor Nicole Itaragia about how the use of forensic science has helped open the door to this difficult past. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thanks again for listening to Realms of Memory.